Merry Christmas, church family. Happy New Year. It's a pleasure to be in the house of the Lord today. What a wonderful time of year it is. Uh, what, what a wonderful time of fellowship. Just last night, uh, my wife and I, we spent some time uh, with family uh, just down south here, about an hour or so. Open presents, celebrated the New Year, celebrated Christmas. Uh, what a wonderful season for fellowship. One of the other things, however, that I love about this time of year is that it's a wonderful time for reflection. We, we, we spend a lot of time reflecting on how the year went, things that we did well, goals that we may have met or may have not met. We, we spend time reflecting on, on goals that we, that, that we would like to set for the new year. And so today, I would like to spend some time reflecting on something that, that might be a little bit peculiar for this, time of, for this time of year, but I would like for you to, to spend a few minutes reflecting with me on pain. I'd like for you to consider this question with me. Why does pain exist? Why do we go through seasons of trial? Why do we go through seasons of, of searing heartache and, and, and just broken, a broken soul over who knows what? Whether, whether we talk about, however, an internal, more emotional pain or, or maybe a more external physical pain, many, many people describe pain as simply an acknowledgement that something isn't right. That's what pain does, that's the purpose it serves. Thinking more externally, if I, if I, if I break my ankle, my, my brain will isolate that specific portion of my leg and, and will, will tell me that something is wrong. If, if we're thinking more internally, as I sent my parents back overseas just a couple of weeks ago, there's this heartache that, that, that I experience. And, and, People would say that this is because I, I'm missing something. Something is incorrect. And the existence of pain, friends, serves as a, a flare gun of sorts, that, that, that something is not quite as you want it to be, something that is not quite as you feel maybe it should be. And this really is a fundamental human experience. Discomfort, disappointment, pain, and yet, truly, the church climate that, that you and I often live in fails to, to acknowledge personal pain oftentimes. Just this morning, as I've interacted with a few of you, actually, I, I've asked the question, how are you? And, and most of the time, I, I, was, I was answered with, I'm doing fine, I'm doing well, how are you? I'm blessed. Yes, you are very blessed, but many of you failed. I, I, I did not get one acknowledgement of a, of a season of personal pain. I, I did not get one mention of any Difficulty And in a room this size, I just find that to be highly unlikely, especially around this time of year, friends. Christmas, New Year's, there, there can be a difficult, difficult season for, for so many of us. Yet the impulse is to put out a, a picture of a cozy, happy family uh, warmed up by a fire with a, with a nice cup of hot chocolate and matching pajamas. <laughs> Yet there is a tendency to, to, to hide pain. There's a, there's a tendency to hide your difficulties, and what this does is it cinches off any chance at vulnerability, any chance at relational intimacy with other people, and I would submit to you that this is a horribly unbiblical practice, because as you flip through the Bible, what you will find is all kinds of expressions of discomfort, of pain, of grief, and as we prepare our hearts here at Heritage Church for, for several months studying uh, book three of the Psalms, we will begin to see these repeated cries of, of, of deep pain, of, of cutting grief and, and longing soaked in disappointment. 
We'll begin to see these things all throughout the Bible. And this, these sort of expressions of pain are what the Bible calls lament. This is lament. Over one-third of the 150 psalms in the Psalter fall into this category of lament. And what that means is that over one-third of these psalms, over 50 of these psalms, are devoted to sharing and expressing pain, expressing the grief that we feel. And so it's important for us today as one body to develop an understanding of how we navigate this kind of literature, how to navigate this sort of lament. And so if you would turn with me to Psalm 13, that is where we will be today. And as you turn there, it's important for you to know that this was written by King David. And what we will see is three different sentiments that, that, that David expresses towards the Lord that, 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 that coalesce into one collective lament and one collective worship song. And what we will see in verse one and two is a question of how long. Verses three and four, you will see a, a command to act. And in verses five through six, you will see a cry of praise. And read this psalm with me and see what the Lord has to say. Starting in verse one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we love your word. We love the, 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 the reality of your word. We love that your word is not, uh, it, it does not, uh, is, we love that your word speaks to the real condition of the human heart, that it, it, it expresses real pain, does not try to hide anything from us. Lord, as we, as we delve into this topic today of personal pain and lament and expressions of grief Lord, would you, uh, would you rise out of all of it to, to, to show that you are glorious, to show that you are the king of the Lord, uh, of, the war, of the world. It's in your name I pray, amen. And so as we look at this question, how long, it's important to know that scholars are, are, are generally unsure of exactly when this was penned in David's life. However, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, the life of King David certainly presents plenty of opportunity for him to ask this question. David's life, see, in David's life, he spent many, many years running from people who, who were trying to kill him and trying to assail him. And his, but his story begins early on in 1 Samuel 16. King David is anointed as king. The prophet Samuel comes, visits David at his house, anoints him king. And this is God saying to David, you will be, you are the king that I have chosen. As a, as a young boy, if you flip the page in 1 Samuel 17, you'll see the epic story of David killing Goliath. And this is David's coronation, his sort of inauguration saying this moment where we get to see that yes, this is God's chosen man. However, Saul, the, the, the previous king, grew jealous, and then refusing to vacate his throne on and off for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul seeks to kill David. And what this does is 
it leaves David wandering through the wilderness. It leaves David praying for his life. It leaves David sleeping in caves. It leaves David wondering when God is ever going to fulfill this promise to him. And this was David's life for many years until Saul eventually died and David was able to assume the throne. However, not too long into his time as king, David's own son rallies a mob to try and kill him. And this once again forces David to vacate the throne for a season, vacating the throne that God has promised him. And once again, he's on the run, sleeping in caves, finding food wherever he can find it. And now David would eventually make it back to the throne. However, what scripture teaches us is that for the better part of David's life, he was not where he wanted to be. Despite the promise that God had bestowed on David, there was suffering, there was despair, there was disappointment at every turn of his life. And this is why he finds himself asking this question, how long, O Lord, years and years of pain, heartbreak, disappointment, flood the words of this psalm. He drips with emotion as he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me. This repetition and cadence is, what, is why Charles Spurgeon coined this psalm, the howling psalm. So the question we, we, we need to ask is, why does David howl? Why does David howl? Implicit in David's choice of words is God's presence. You'll see right here at the beginning, how long will you hide your face from me? This, this word face is nearly synonymous with the, the, the presence, the the relational nearness of God, and that, that, that is what distinguished the God of Israel from the, any other God, was that he was relationally near. He, he, he saw into the depths of your soul, and the, this face of God begins to imply that, that, that this has been taken away from David. Think of number six. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, lift his countenance or his face towards you, his presence. Habakkuk 2.20, let all the earth be silent before him, before him in his Presence, that's the same word, face. Psalm 104, 29, when you hide your face, they return to dust. Friends, the face of God, the manifest presence of God is necessary for all of life and all of human flourishing. That is what we need. In fact, one commentator says that without Yahweh's face, life itself would crumble like ash and it would expire. So friends, why then does David howled. David howls because he feels as though God himself has left him to die. How long will you hide your face from me? Verse one, God has taken his presence. God has taken his favor. God has taken his joy and he has left David in a sort of spiritual vacuum. He feels as though his life is crumbling away and get this, God is the one who did it. God is the one who did it, and this is the deepest valley of despair, where it appears as though the Lord himself is the one who abandons you, where, where you feel as though it is the Lord himself who brought destruction on you, days where it feels like the Lord has simply forgotten who he was, like his character has changed somehow. There, th this is the greatest pain imaginable. This is the pain that David feels. You see, David has known the greatness of God. 
He has tasted the sweetness of God. He has experienced the glorious might and the glorious power of God. Yet somehow something happens that the intimacy that was once a rushing river of life is now a dead, dry riverbank. And all you can see are, are, are the remnants of the glories that used to be. As an upperclassman in high school, I, I was tasked with leading a, a spiritual retreat uh, small group. Uh, and one of my co-leaders, her, her, her name was Esther, in sharing her testimony with the be- at, at the beginning of the retreat with the other leadership, began weeping. Weeping. Through tears, she expressed a, a lost intimacy, a lost worship, a lost fellowship with the Lord. And, and frankly, she, she wasn't sure why. She, she went to church consistently. She, she, had an, she was active in her school's Bible study. She was an active leader on worship team. She, she had real, intimate, personal worship with the Lord. And yet she's asking herself this question, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? And as you consider how this might bear itself on your life, sometimes, dear friends, life is just really hard. Regardless of how much prayer, regardless of how much Bible study, regardless of how much accountability you have with your friends, life is just really hard. Sometimes the Lord elects for you a a particular season of pain. Philippians 1.29 tells us that it is granted not only to believe, but to suffer. And if you are a believer in Christ, I, I promise you, if you have not already, you will experience seasons where you're asking the same question, how long, oh Lord? There will be long seasons of pain. There will be deep questions of self-worth. There will be tender feelings of abandonment. And one of the most poignant questions in all the Bible comes in Psalm 77, verse nine, Asaph asks, has God forgotten to be gracious? And this question, this idea that Asaph, the worship leader of the temple is trying to communicate, it really forms the foundation of a biblical lament. You find yourself asking the question, has God forgotten who he is supposed to be? It feels like a father who has promised to defend his children. This is a father who has bought you land. He has built your house. He has protected you. He has devoted his life to caring for your most intimate needs, for your, for your most personal worries. A father who's, almost pro, who's always promised to be with you, and then one day he's not. One day he leaves. And yet, not only does he leave, you, you, you look next door and you find he's gone to the next door neighbor's house. And he has begun, begun developing their land. He has begun infringing upon all of this that God has promised you. He is allowing them to now overtake what he has given you, and you find yourself asking this question, has God forgotten who he's supposed to be? This is why David asks, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Not only does he feel he's been abandoned by God, but, but, but that his enemy has been exalted over him, again, under the same power of God, despite the fact that, 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 that God had promised to love David, protect David, and make David king over the land, and I, I just wonder, do, do you find yourself asking the Lord how long? Are you in a season where you feel that God himself has abandoned you? Do you feel like God has forgotten who he has promised 
to be. Now, we, we live in a culture that tries to provide answers and rationalizations for this kind of pain and heartbreak. Next time you check out at Walmart, just try and count how many magazines offer fixes to all of your problems. Look around, look around at the amount of people in this world who permit bad behavior on the part of a family member or a child and, and they rationalize it somehow, making it, somehow making it acceptable. The, the, while those things are not necessarily invalid and impossible, sometimes the reality is that we just, that, that we have to deal with as people living in a fallen world is pain. Sometimes things just hurt and sometimes things are just hard and there's no fix. It, it, it really just is. Sometimes, sometimes children and family members stray from the Lord. Sometimes people near to our hearts die. Sometimes it, it just seems like the Lord himself is out to get you. And, and friends, if I'm honest, sometimes it just seems like too much of our lives are, are, are spent asking this question, how, how long, oh Lord? Friends, this is pain. This is truly pain, unlike anything else. However, it is in the midst of this pain and in the midst of these feelings of betrayal that, that one is driven toward a command to act. This question of how long morphs into a demand and an expectation. Look at verses three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There's a sentiment that this is something the Lord must do. The Lord is the one being forced to act in some manner, seen mainly in the words, consider me, answer me. These are what we call imperatives or, or these sort of evocative commands, and they are expectations from one person placed onto another party. These are commands in the Bible, but why should these imperatives pique your interest more so than other imperatives? Most notably, because this is an imperative put forth from a human onto God. His pain bleeds into this demand and expectation for God to do something about it. He's saying, God, because this happened in my life, you must act a certain way. And if you, not, I, if you do not, I will die. This idea continues to develop feelings of abandonment, but it also begs the question, is it permissible to demand things of God in this manner? Is it sin? Is it wrong? And while there, I do believe there are incorrect manners in which to do that, in, in, the, in this specific case, I, I would answer that this, that this is not sin for David. I, I, would, I, would, I would submit that this, that this is permissible. The Bible as you look, flip through it, is filled with people crying out to God with their expectations and with their de desires. We're even commanded to, Philippians 4, 6, let your requests be made known to God. If you look at the beginning of 1 Samuel, as we've talked about a little bit, you, you, you'll see the prayer of Hannah. She's crying out in pain, asking God for, her, for a son. And what we begin to see is that this sort of evocative command this imperative is an integral part of a biblical lament. Now, why is that? Because it is in the midst of despair that there, that, that there is some sort of incongruency between our experience and what we know to be true. Between our experience and what we know to be true. And what this does is it puts you into a moment 
of crisis. And what that means for David is that he experiences God as one being distant, as one who has deserted him. However, what we know of God, what he knows of God to be true, is that he is a God who listens. So all David is trying to do is plead with God who he, who he has to be, who he has always been. He's appealing to God's character to be who he knows God truly is. And otherwise, it, it, it will not just be David's enemies, but the, but the enemies of God that will triumph. This is why it says at the, in verse three and four, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Let my, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Matthew Henry providing insight to this verse says, faith is the eye of the soul with which it sees above and sees through the things of sense. What he's saying is that David is calling on what he knows to be true, what he knows God's character to be to help him discern the truth. This is his faith that is helping him see because you see, it is knowledge of the truth and our commitment to what is true that helps you peel back the veil behind human experience and see what is ultimately true. In other words, your emotions, your thoughts, and your feelings lie to you. Your experience and the truth, the ultimate truth, are, are, are often incongruent, incongruent with one another. And leaning into what you know to be true, despite the pain that you experience, will, will, will help you pierce through this, this, this pain and see God to be ultimately True, I, I began to understand this as a, as a small group leader at, at Super Summer not too long ago. I, I had a student uh, who, who was wrestling with his own salvation in light of some past mistakes and some past sin. Five minutes into camp, I was introducing myself and, and I just began to ask this student about his life, where he's from, what, 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 what is going on, what, where his situation, what his family's like. And, and within five minutes of meeting this student, he, he was in tears, expressing how God simply cannot forgive him. He was, he, he, throughout, the, throughout the week, he, throughout group discussions, he, he simply wouldn't participate. He, he, was, he was upset the whole time. He did not want to be any, a part of any sort of programming, simply because he thought he was unsaved. He was convinced that the Lord had abandoned him. And throughout the week, much to my shame, I, I, I simply tried to reason him, reason with him. I tried convincing him that his sin had not exceeded the bounds of God's grace. I tried to argue with him that it, it's foolish to think God couldn't forgive him. I tried to appeal to the fact that God is more powerful than he is. And, and all of this really done to, to no avail and then when I shared with one of my, my cohort leaders the, the, the struggle I was having with this student, they, they said they wanted to chat with him. And I said, uh, of course. And so the next day, that leader took my student aside during some free time to, just to have a conversation about these things that he's struggling with. And almost immediately after that conversation, I, I watched my student walk back to me and a burden was lifted off of his shoulders. He was joyful. He was excited. He, he was involved. He was probably the most fun student in my group that, that, that week after that. And, and I, I asked him what happened. And, uh, what, did our, what did our leader said? I didn't know. I was, 
I, I was eager to find out what he had said and maybe frankly uh, a little bit jealous, but this, this is what my student said. He said, that leader took me inside this room and, and he opened his Bible and he showed me what is true. He reminded me what is true. And this is exactly what David is doing. He's leaning toward truth amidst pain. He musters what little energy he has to call on God's character because that's what he knows to be true in the deepest parts of who he is. His, his very soul depends on it. This is why he says, if this isn't true, I will sleep the sleep of death from the very core of his being, somewhere there in the middle of his chest, he says, consider me, answer me. This is what he knows to be most true God's character. So friends, whenever you, whatever you know to be true in your life, I hope you know this, is what, is what you will run to in times of crisis and pain. Whatever you know to be most true in your life is what you will run to in times of crisis and pain, just like David did recently, Past, Dr. Tim Keller in his sermons would often ask the question, where do you go in the margins of your day? If you're one of my youth students, you'll remember me talking to you about this, but throughout the day, even on your busiest days, you will find one, two, three minute gaps between different things that you have going on. The, 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 these one, two, three minute gaps of quietness, of, of stillness. And, and the question Dr. Keller's trying to ask is, where do you go in those moments? Where does your mind go? Does it go to the score of yesterday's football game? Does it go to the amount of resources you've poured into your, your 401k? Does it go toward your next vacation, the next moment where you just have the opportunity to, to get away? Or does your mind wander to the, to, the, to, the, to the glories and the majesty of the God who created you? Dr. Keller says that where your mind goes in those moments, that is what you worship. That's what you really believe to be most true. And that's why, friends, it is crucial for you to soak in your Bible every single day of your life. Read it, devour it, meditate on it, because the Bible is truth. John 17, 17, your word is truth. So when the day comes where you ask the fateful question, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You will have a deep reservoir of truth to draw from that propels you back into the very character and the very nature of God. And what you believe to be, and if what you believe to be most true is anything else other than that, the, you, you, you will crumble in those moments. Your, your, your life will fade away like, like ash. And so friends, when we believe God and his promises to be the thing that is most true about us, uh, we, we begin to resound with a cry of praise. Listen to this explosion of worship that bursts out of David's heart, five and six. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, his commitment to what is true about God and what is ultimately most true spills into just a, a beautiful power of remember, remembrance. What does he remember but God's steadfast love? Some say that this word, steadfast love, is the most important word in the Old Testament. It's used 
127 times in the Psalms has said it does not really have an English word that pinpoints its definition exactly, but the most technical, in my opinion, is God's covenant faithfulness or the love that God has for you, the the, the love that God has for us wrapped up in the covenant. And the message of this covenant is incredibly powerful. It is the promise that God made to his people in Genesis 12 through 15, where he says, I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. I'm going to choose you to be my special people for an eternity. And there's absolutely nothing God's people can do to break the covenant because in the covenant, he promises to take the punishment for our disobedience. Such that if you belong to the family of God, your sins have been totally paid for. If you study the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again, the people of God choose to live in active rebellion against him. They they construct idols to other gods. their, Their kings would sleep with other women. David himself had a man killed simply so he could have an affair with his wife. But because of God's has said, because of his steadfast love, because of his covenant faithfulness, he has promised to bear the punishment for all the wrongdoing. This is why, friends, Jesus came to pay the price for the sins of God's people, both now in the past and in the future. So now if you belong to God, he sees nothing but a spotless lamb with a trajectory toward heaven. This leaves no room for fear, no room for anxiety, no room for worry. This just leaves an eternity with a loving God to hope for. And this is the kind of love that David trusts. This is what David anchors his soul on. This is where David uh, places the cornerstone of his life on, this kind of love. And, And it is his reflections on this love that bring exuberant joy the second half of verse five. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Commentators all note that really nothing has changed circumstantially. Whatever causes his pain, whatever made him howl in verse one and two still troubles him. And again, we don't know exactly what's happening at the time of writing, but maybe he's still running for his life. Maybe he's writing this in a cave, being hunted by his son. Maybe his best friend, Jonathan, has just died. Maybe he's simply writing this, having been waiting for decades to finally be the king that God promised him he would be. However, this pain, questioning, and doubt has been superseded by an inferno of joy and a melody of worship found in salvation. Verse six, again, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David sees beyond the clouds to the light breaking through because God has brought him salvation. What else would he need? And friends, this is a biblical lament to express a cry of pain, a feeling of abandonment, an intense grief of despair and to lean into that which you know to be true and Despite all of it, find joy in knowing that you have a hope far more eternal and far more lasting than this pain you're experiencing right now. Friends, this is why I am a Christian. Because amidst searing pain, my soul has something to cling to. 
You see, this world tells you that there's nothing beyond this life. There's nothing in this world beyond yourself. And if that were true, I would have nothing but to despair. I would have nothing but pain, nothing to hope for. Yet, friends, this is why I had John read from 2 Corinthians 4 at the beginning of the service. Verse 8, that chapter says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Friends, if you are a believer, you are promised Pain. You are promised sorrow, you are promised affliction, but you are not destroyed. You are not driven to complete despair. You are not crushed. Why? Because you have the hope of eternity set before you. Yes, friends, the pain is real. There is deep sorrow, but there is deep cause for worship. Because the Lord, as verse six says, has dealt bountifully with you. He has sent you Jesus Christ to bear the sins of mankind, past, present, and future. So to the weary brother or sister, I urge you to look up. What a wonderful salvation we have. Oh, that the Lord would look upon you and die for you. At least that is a little bit of cause for worship. To those who may not know Christ, there is a promise of eternal joy in the midst of your pain. There's a promise of present suffering but, but, but there is also something that waits beyond the dark clouds. Friend, fellowship with God, a creator who considered your needs and answered your cry. And if you have any questions about what that kind of relationship with God looks like, I invite you to visit with me or any of the other elders of this church after this service. Friends, we have nothing if we don't have Christ. We have nothing if we don't have Christ. He gives us a reason to wake up in the morning. He gives us a reason to, to go to work. He gives us a reason to, 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 he gives us a reason to, to comfort our friends in the midst of despair. We have nothing without Christ. And I, I, I leave you as we, as we finish our time together with the words of Albert Barnes speaking to the nature of this Christian lament. He says, it is only in connection Christianity that the idea has been carried out by the doctrine of the resurrection. For as we lie down at night with the hope of awaking to the pursuits and enjoyment of a new day, so the Christian lies down in death with the hope of awaking in the morning of the resurrection to the pursuits and enjoyments of a new and eternal day. Everywhere else, death is to the mind a long and unbroken sleep. Brothers and sisters, hope in God. All we have, he is all we have in joy, and he is all we have in our pain.